Welcome to Henry's Uncle, where you're always loved and never judged. Uh, today we have uh, Jimmy as our guest. Uh, Jimmy talks about being closeted in a Catholic environment, coming out, his alcoholism, and going to therapy to find self-love and self-awareness, which ultimately led uh, to becoming sober. And here we go. Jimmy, welcome to the Henry Uncle Podcast. Why, thank you. And thank Thanks you for, for joining today. Yeah, I'm excited. Yes, I'm very excited. Um, uh, we have known each other, you are 31. Yep. So we've known each other for probably 25 years. Yeah. A very long time. Wild. Yes, very <laughs> wild. Uh, um, you have a, uh, when we're talking uh, yesterday uh, about today's show, um, you have a very amazing story very inspiring story as well so i'm uh you know we're very excited to hear it um so yeah the floor is yours we'd love to you know hear about your story um and what you have to offer okay great i mean it's just a story i wouldn't say it's amazing (laughs) but it's my unique story everyone's got their own story um so we can start off you know i i think we talked about yesterday um you know, we talked about growing up because I remember we, uh, uh, for some background, uh, we went to Catholic school, kindergarten through 12th grade. Yikes. A long time. Yikes. That's a long yes. time. <laughs> yes. Uh, six years old. I thought you were 18. talking about the Catholic part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I do recall, um, you know, I was uh, two years older than you. And I, I, I do remember in your class, you know, you, you did get bullied. Yeah. I remember that. Yep. Um, and then you mentioned yesterday that also during that time uh, in sixth grade, you found out, uh, or you didn't find out, but uh, you came to the realization that you were gay. Super gay. <laughs> yeah. If you guys it can't was hear like, it. It was like night and day, like, oh shit, here I am, world. Yeah. <laughs> I guess this is it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So bullied, first of all, because I was a large child. Um, so that was a bummer. You guys can't see Jimmy now. He's skinny as a stick. Oh, thank so. you. Yeah. What else? <laughs> Keep it coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was bullied because I was large. Um, and just like a weirdo, you know, like just being that weird kid. Uh, and then sixth grade is when I really realized like, oh, I'm totally gay. There is like no way I like women. <laughs> it was like, Right around the time I found porn. It was like, okay, cool. Like penis.com. Great. That's, <laughs> that's what's up. <laughs> um, but being in a Catholic school, you know, you hear every day, yeah. whether or not people say it directly, it's reinforced that you are going to hell. Like mm-hmm. there is nothing right about you and yeah. about like who you are intrinsically. And it was like still, you know, still the belief that people chose to be gay at that time. And so... I had like a big middle finger to all that, that yeah. talk. Cause it's like, hell no. Like, why would I choose this? That's dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that played a huge role in everything else affecting my life negatively from there on. Um, let's see. So realized I was gay sixth grade and kind of suppressed all of that. Um, until I was 18 and that's when I came out, it was senior year of high school. 
freshman year got bullied a lot then, you know, like trying to hide my flamboyancy, trying to be as asexual as possible, like could not hint that I was gay at all, but still like would hear people call me a faggot in the hall and in the locker room and stuff really? like that. Oh yeah. Cause they knew or just, no, that's just, just normal. Your class or all classes? Class. Or, okay. Yeah. Just because I, I remember being like that a age and saying that, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean people say it and you know, they would say it to their friends in the locker room, but I would yeah. hear people like directly call me faggot. Oh. And it is like the worst feeling in the world mm-hmm. when you're closeted to be called gay. Oh, yeah. Man. Because you're doing whatever you can to not be gay. Now, were these like your you know friends in the locker room or whatever? No. Just, okay. Oh, no. No. It was like, I so remember direct very specifically direct insult. And then one time we were going into PE class and someone walked in right after me and was like, hey, Jimmy, this person just called you a faggot. I was like, oh, cool. Like, why'd you tell me that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say that, but that stuck with me forever. And it's like a needle going yeah. into your heart and twisting and pulling yeah. it all out. Yeah. Did you ever confront anyone about that or just kind no, of keep it quiet? No, kept it down, kept it yeah. locked down. Yeah. But that was like another, like, okay, I really need to keep this in check now. Mm-hmm. Like, recenter, refocus, and don't show any sort of vibe at all. So, like, I recently reconnected with my voice teacher from high school. Okay. And, she was like, you know, I had no idea you were gay. I didn't even think you were straight. I thought you were completely asexual because you didn't give off any vibes. <laughs> and I was like, sweet job. Well done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a great liar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But like that had such a negative impact in my life because sure. you know, I, because of that, I grew up with such low self-esteem um, and like hated myself completely, which like led to depression, uh, and, you know, I was, like, riddled with anxiety. Yeah. And as a performer, it totally hindered what I wanted to do. Yeah. Because I wouldn't pursue auditions. I wouldn't I wouldn't try because I didn't want to be let down. So you went through high school, suppressed everything, and then uh, <coughs> senior year, you mentioned that you came out. Yeah. So that was wild, actually. We were doing the Laramie Project, which I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys know what that show is. It's about Matthew Shepard, who was brutally murdered for being gay in Laramie, Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And we did this. And meanwhile, there are students talking about protesting the show. So I was like, really? At this school, seniors are protesting the show we're doing. That's ridiculous. Um, But we were fortunate enough to have Matthew Shepard's mom come and talk to us. She came and spoke to the cast and spoke to the school. Um, So hearing her story was really inspiring and really helped me realize like I needed to come out. And I was also at the time in a religion class where we were talking about dreams, setting dreams, Mm -hmm. Um, family values, I think was the class, probably the best religion class I ever took because it was not about religion. (laughs) It was about being a good person. Yeah. Um, Anyway, we were talking about dreams and I had this recurring dream where I was picking or I had like this massive zit on my forehead and it was so painful and I popped it and a, like this giant slug of a like a zit came out and I, it's still <laughs> so vivid to me, but yeah. I kept having that over and over again. And that was me realizing like, I need to come out. Once I let go of this, I yeah. will be me and finally be free of this burden. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came out to my drama teacher during the play. She's like, you know what? <laughs> There's a lot of stress going on. You're about to graduate. You're doing the show. Like just calm down for now and maybe come out in the summer, which was a great idea because I was angsty as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I was so mad at, at the world. Um, so I came out that summer. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first thing my mom said to me was, 
use condoms. He's <laughs> like, great, I love you too. Thanks, mom. <laughs> uh, but, you know, she like lived through the AIDS crisis and had friends that yeah. died. So she had safety in mind. Uh, yeah. So that's the coming out story. Yeah. Uh, but then, so from there, it, what's interesting though is, is still a teacher telling you to kind of suppress it almost. Yeah, it was hard. That was like a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. I was ready to come out. I was ready to be me. Because you're still, I mean, even though it's senior year, I mean, you're, what, we're talking March? Yeah. March, April time frame? Yeah. And you still have a couple months to go. Yeah. And what made it really hard, not only that, but in the show, you know, we were having these discussions about homosexuality. And there was another person in the cast that was also closeted, who I didn't know was closeted at the time. But we had these discussions about homosexuality, and the convo was always them and us. Mm. like them being the gays outside of the room because yeah. no one in the room is gay. <laughs> and like, it was impossible for me to contribute to those conversations because I was gay, but yeah. I couldn't because I was closeted. So that was really hard. Wow. Yeah. And then, so from there, uh, you know, being the talented singer you are, you got a scholarship to Northwestern Yeah, for opera singing. Yeah, lucked out there. Yeah, so you um, go to Northwestern. Went to Northwestern, uh, studied opera. Um, so freshman year is really when my alcoholism kicked in. Um, I knew from my first sip of alcohol that I loved it. Yeah. It was a little too much, a little too much. It was yeah. senior year. I w- was terrified of alcohol because I heard it was a truth serum and I did everything I could to not come out. Mm. So I wasn't drinking. I like wouldn't go to parties. People wouldn't invite me to parties because they're like, Oh, you're the prude. You won't, you won't like this. Which is fine. I wouldn't have gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did start drinking a little bit. And like that warm feeling you get, mm-hmm. man, like I remember it so vividly. The first like few shots I took and feeling amazing and unstoppable. Yeah. Um, so prom, actually, I took the same date to junior and senior prom and we're like best friends today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at prom, she was like drunkenly like, why won't you make out with me, Jimmy? <laughs> I was like, oh, girl, I'll tell you in a few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta wait yeah. till the summer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I was, you know, drinking that summer and had fun. It wasn't out of control or anything until October of my freshman year when my best friend Sam was killed in a car accident pretty unexpectedly. Um, and that was a huge catalyst for everything. You know, we all cope with tragedy in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be in an acapella group that was also a huge party group. And kind of the two of those combined really just like really amplified my alcoholism and really just like, Oh, here we go. This is it. Um, and like from then on, I was drinking every night with the acapella group or by myself or at other parties. Wow. I think drinking by yourself is really where it comes. Like the alcoholism really gets substantiated. Yeah. Is you can be comfortable with yourself drinking. Yeah. I mean, I know for myself, like I'm like, I look at alcohol when I'm by myself. I'm like, why? You know, I look at marijuana. I'm like, okay, but alcohol, I don't have that same reaction. Yeah. I I remember the, I still remember very vividly, though, one of the most uh, courageous things I've ever seen. Um, you know, because after, you know, when my brother passed away last year and, and, you know, going to the funeral and stuff and you're in such a fog, you know, you just don't even know what to think. Your emotions are all over the place. You're just kind of just there. Mm-hmm. And I remember very vividly to this day. Um, so I was, well, this is probably 12, 13 years ago. Uh they had a you know big uh, memorial for Sam, Jimmy's best friend, at Jesuit, and there was I don't know 
500 to 1,000 people there or something. Yeah, it was big. Yeah, and the casket was there. And I remember Jimmy singing right next to his best friend. Incredible. Just absolutely amazing. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I was there. Yeah. Were you? At the funeral, yeah. right? you're talking about? Oh, no, no. Uh, his best friend's oh, funeral. Oh, his best friend. Yeah, 12 sorry. years ago. I you talking about. Yeah, 13 years ago. I was, like, it was shoot, uh, you were there? <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry. But yeah, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen because you performed incredible. Thank you. But <laughs> so, so you have a, a, a very big, you know, kind of two huge traumatic things in your life. One was, you know, suppressing your, um, who you are, being gay. Mm-hmm. Um, finally coming out, uh, you get your first taste of alcohol finally, and then your best friend dies. Yeah. Well, and that the, whole year was like pretty rough. Yeah. Lauren Alcantara was in oh, your yes. class, and she, we were friends through drama, and yep. she died from cancer earlier right. that year. Jeez. I came out, my grandma died, and then Sam died. Wow. It was like a lot. It's a lot of trauma in, yeah. in like six months. Yeah. So, you know, everyone deals with it differently and I turned yeah. to alcohol. That was my coping mechanism. Wow. Yeah. Did, and, you, did you not have others around you or like what made you choose alcohol? Was it? Um, well, I went to a commuter school and there were like a couple other people that knew Sam. Uh, so it was nice having them there, but I would just escape with my acapella group, hang out with them. We'd party every night. Mm-hmm. And that was just it. That was like... You know, from then on, that's what we did every night. Yeah. Like sophomore year, I think there were like weeks at a time where I was hanging out at that acapella apartment every night, Mm. just drinking. Wow. Um, So I knew like from the get go that it was a problem. It runs in my family. My grandpa was an alcoholic. He was sober my entire life. I never Mm. knew him as a drunk. Um, We would have like O'Doul's at family gatherings. (laughs) (laughs) I remember trying that as like a kid. This is horrible. (laughs) Why would anyone drink this? Um, But I, so I knew it ran ran in the family and I was worried about it. I was worried my whole life about it. Um, But that freshman year, I was like, well, this will have to end at some point. I know it will, but it's great for now. Mm -hmm. Um, Sophomore year, I really tried. Sophomore years where, so alcoholics, if, in my experience and from what I've talked to other people, they're liars. They're really good liars and they convince mm-hmm. themselves of these lies and believe them. And mm-hmm. it's scary. Um, so that happened to me sophomore year. I, it was Lent and I tried giving up alcohol. I was like, this is, this, maybe this will be it, you know? Um, I didn't sleep for a couple nights because I wasn't drinking. And because of that, I l- believed that I had this like I, I developed a phobia of sleeping sober. Like I couldn't sleep sober. So I knew I had to drink in order to sleep. Wow. wow. And I believe that for eight years, that's how long I was drinking oh every night. Gosh. Eight years. Yeah. Every night. Every night. And no one knew like go, coming home from college. I was very secretive. I was, mm-hmm. I mean, cause I had grown up lying to myself about my sexuality. Right. I was so good at it. Yeah. And I was like, let's just continue that with this. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. I need alcohol to sleep and function. Mm-hmm. So let's continue this lie. Wow. Yeah. So you, so you go through college, you try to, during Lent, you know, you try to, uh, you know, get sober. And how long did that last? Was that week, two weeks? Well, so I was like not sleeping for a couple nights, mm-hmm. but I still didn't want to drink. So I just smoked a ton of pot. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then once Lent was over, I mean, I probably only did that for like 
a couple weeks. Yeah. Didn't even make it through all yeah. of Lent and then went back to drinking. I wow. think it really emphasizes like the damage that stigma causes, you know, like the fact that you've had to be, you have to hold these, the cards close to your chest. Mm-hmm. And so now it's creating these, uh, vehicles of how you can, um, tell yourself like, okay, this is okay to do. Right. Yeah. And so th- it just makes you mad at society, mm-hmm. you know, it's infuriating. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. It yeah. is scary. So when you look back at college now, how did, you know, drinking affect your college experience? Um, it affected a lot. There were days where I would drink in the morning before class, Mm -hmm. um, which was horrible. Uh, I'd like show up in class, probably reeking of alcohol, um, even to like some theater classes, which is what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. And because of that, I just didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Like I would be in a, uh, a theater class. I had a class at noon once on a Friday. It was like a three hour class every Friday. And it was audition techniques. So we'd come in with two songs and sing them and get feedback. And like halfway through the class, I woke up maybe 10 minutes before the class because I was like, you know, hammered the night before. Ran to class, like mid-class, I'm almost throwing up in my seat. So I like have to run. (laughs) This was actually so embarrassing and kind of hilarious. So I was sitting in the pews like watching this performance, I have to get up and go. So I go around behind the pews and it's coming out the vomit and there's like a paint sink back there. So I like kind of spill it into the paint sink. Sorry, this is gross, but it's going to keep going. Yeah. Where it's like a theater. And so there's like, you know, just like a random sink where you can dump paint Paint. in if you're for like like makeup or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so then I make it to the bathroom and I like projectile vomit all over (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the <Wow>. mirror and <laughs> get him yeah it was so bad and there's like someone in the stall i'm like fuck man this guy is like witnessing the worst <laughs> so then i go upstairs and i have to tell someone like there's vomit everywhere i don't know what to do uh and they like shut the bathroom down and i like walk back into class like bright red like i gotta go this is bad <laughs> and that poor kid sitting in the stall like <laughs> clearly knows who i am at that point <laughs> sure Oopsies. just avoided eye contact <laughs> Uh, anyway, like, so it affected me. Like I didn't do that class as to the best of my ability. Um, even like singing, like I'm a singer. I have to use my voice that, mm-hmm. and I, if I'm shoving alcohol down that alcohol dries out your voice, it's not good for you, uh, especially as a singer. And so that affected my training, uh, my audition techniques, uh, pretty much everything. Plus I was just hung over all the time. So I couldn't perform yeah. to the best of my ability. Wow. You were able to make it through college or even with this or yeah. you got uh, your singing degree? And- yes. I like barely made it actually. I had like one credit remaining that I forgot about and didn't go to the class because it was too early for me and I was too drunk. Um, and I like had to beg the teacher after sending in my final paper to like, let me pass. Mm-hmm. And I think my paper was good enough cause uh, I passed. So <laughs> here I am with a Northwestern degree. Woo. Yeah. yeah. So you got the degree. Lucked out. Come home. Uh, what happens after that? Um, so came home and that's when, you know, I realized like, oh, I'm also crazy depressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's an another issue that developed because of being gay and closeted and like the alcoholism didn't help because it's a depressant. Yeah. Um, so I was working random odd jobs, like not feeling fulfilled, but also not caring because I was drinking and had no ambition. Um, I had also 
auditioned for grad schools. I got into two amazing schools, Manhattan School of Music, and then I deferred because I was like, I don't know if I want to do this yet. I'm going to keep drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, the next year, um, I auditioned for University of Maryland, and they they take like eight kids, and they all get free rides. And I got in, and I deferred again. Wow. What? Yeah. And they don't let people defer, but they let me do it. Wow. And I was very lucky, but... I didn't go to grad school the year after. Um, because of just the drinking? Um, the, the drinking played into it, but that was because of all my low self-esteem and depression. And but you got in. You I know. know like, and you still felt that, like, I'm not good enough feeling? Yeah. Or what was the feeling? So it's kind of hard to describe, um, but I can give you an example. So I did a show in Portland, a solo concert, and it went really well until the very last song. I was singing and my voice was getting strained and like on the very last note, my voice gave out and like cracked and gave out. And my thought process um, was that because that cracked, I ruined everyone's show. I ruined, it was a waste of everyone's time and people should get their money back and I shouldn't do a show again. And those were like what I believed to be facts, Mm. which is crazy. Like that's insane. And that's because I grew up with all of, you know, the environment I grew up in Mm -hmm. uh, and all my low self-esteem, it had accumulated at that point. So what about people around you? I mean, family, friends, they see, okay, you're getting into these amazing schools, you're deferring, you're still drinking. I mean, they know you're a talented person, but you're just... Well, did your family know at that time when, you know, you're what, 23? Yeah, 23-ish. They, I don't think they knew... That birthday was a really sad birthday. I was working at Nordstrom at the time, and it was, I turned 23, and that's my favorite number because I was born on the 23rd, and I had like really high expectations for this birthday. (laughs) Um, Also, still a virgin at this time, so that's cool. (laughs) Like, pissed off at that, pissed off at the gay community, you know. (laughs) After trying and no, I mean, well, I had low self esteem, so like, I would never go out with anyone. I thought no one would love me, you know, plus, like, in the gay world, if you don't have abs, you're a nobody. That's like, <laughs> I'm screwed. That's like the message that I got, you yeah. know? Like, luckily in Portland, that's not the case. This is like Bear City, <laughs> Dad Bod Central. Like, they praise that shit. Anyway, um, oh shit, what was I saying? Uh, just about your low self esteem. Low self esteem. Like, people around you. People you know, around me. Okay, what I'm saying so is like, 23. Don't they yeah, 23 birthday. was the birthday. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, keeping me on track here. Wow. Uh, so turned 23 and I was so sad. Um, that day, let's see, it was the night before my birthday. I was just like a mess. I went to the store and got a six pack of beer, took it to my room and didn't even care that my parents knew I was drinking alone. That was probably the only time I let them see me like drink alone. Mm-hmm. But they didn't see me. They just saw me carry a beer into my room. And I was like crying in bed watching New Girl, like <laughs> sipping my beer, <laughs> like sobbing. Uh, the next morning I had to go to work and I had a full on panic attack, like couldn't breathe, hyperventilating, hysterical. Um, my mom helped me. She like saved the day, hugged me and was like, it's okay. I'm going to take you to work. We're going to tell your boss, you're going to go home. You're going to chill. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fine. So I just told my boss, I had a massive headache and was going to the doctor. And he's like, yeah. get the hell out of here. Um, so then that day it was like, okay, here's some guidelines. If you're going to be living at home, you need to go to therapy. We need to find a therapist for you. This is not okay. And we want you to be happy. Um, 
so I met a therapist and I, this might've been the day or this was on my birthday at this time, uh, met the therapist and, you know, finding a therapist is really hard, uh, because you have to like vet them, see if they work with you, if you vibe. Um, and it's an annoying process because you have to like retell your sad story all over again <laughs> with every new therapist. So you can't share your chart notes. You can't. No, yeah. I, I wish, yeah, man. <laughs> man, if I could have like a cliff note version just to send <laughs> each one, I'm sad. There it is. You know? Uh, so I met with this therapist and told her everything and left like worse off than I came in. I'm like, that was a, a waste of my time. I'm like even more sad and depressed now. Uh, so then I, uh, met with a doctor and she put me on Prozac, um, which really helped. Um, for the first time I was able to like be awake, be a human being in the world and, you know, not be depressed all the time and not have panic attacks. So I had like a, I forget what she prescribed me for my panic attacks. I have like severe depression and anxiety. So like the best combo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So got some like Ativan, I think to suppress my anxiety and then depression meds for depression, um, which worked very well. Um, so now that I'm in like this better state, I'm still drinking every Mm -hmm. night, by the way. Um, no, Oh, okay. Not today. Okay, okay. <laughs> at, at this point. At this point. When I was 23. Um, I, my mom was like, you need to read this book. It's called Breaking the Chain of Low Self-Esteem. Um, so I read it, and it was really good. Uh, really spoke to me, because I, I had horrible self-esteem. And like found out that the woman who wrote the book lives in Tigard, Oregon. Uh, go mom. Yeah, I know. Um, so I met her, uh, her name's Marilyn Sorensen and highly recommend this book to any listeners out there. <laughs> Give her the name of the book um, again. Uh, Breaking the chain of low self-esteem, uh, comes along with a workbook, which you should totally do. Um, so met with her and that going through her therapy really changed my whole life, uh, completely. Um, the techniques I worked with her to get rid of the self-esteem are insane. Like it's amazing how well it worked. I had to put in the work, but it worked very well after like eight months or so. She's like, okay, you're graduated. You have the tools you need now. Stop paying me like go and live your life, which I thought was really cool. Um, but like that example I gave you earlier where I thought it ruined everyone's that show, my squeaky note, part of the exercises we work through is like, okay, we're going to play a game called fact, truth, or history. You're going to give me an example where you had negative self-talk. Um, so it was my voice cracked and it ruined the show. And then she's like, okay, and what else? Uh, and because of that, it was a waste of everyone's time. And then she's like, okay, and what else? And we went on to like four statements. And then after we got that, she's like, can you tell me based on fact, truth, or history that that voice crack ruined everyone's show? I'm like, no. And with every one of those, the answer was no. And that, that moment alone, I think that was in the first session, I was like, oh, I'm flawed. Like, my brain is flawed because that is what I believe to be true, but it is not true. Yeah. Um, so going through that therapy really helped me, uh, like, find those triggers that would, where that self-talk would come in and catch them before they happened. Um, it took a lot of work, but you catch them before it happens. So it just doesn't happen at all anymore. Um, so basically raising my self-awareness to an extreme level and, you know, I didn't tell her I was an alcoholic at the time. I was still drinking. 
I didn't want to tell anyone, but I was able to like get through my self-esteem issues. Um, still on my depression meds, uh, but uh, going through that, having that self-awareness really helped me get sober mm-hmm. and helped me realize I needed to get sober. Um, <clears throat> How did the introduction of antidepressants affect your craving for alcohol? That's a good question. I don't know if it really affected it because I was still drinking every night. I don't think it made it made me want alcohol more or less. Um, yeah, I don't know if I had an experience like that. But I was still drinking, so maybe it did, you know? Um, hmm. I'll think on that. I'll, I'll get back to you later. <laughs> <laughs> There's no rush. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so... So you get you get through this first hurdle, and the final hurdle is is the alcoholism. Yeah. When did you start coming around to realizing that? I mean, you have to first realize it, right? Yeah. When yeah. was the time you realized? Well, I knew that sophomore year of college that this was an issue, and I knew at some point in my life I'd have to address it, but I didn't want to. Right. Um, you kept pushing it. Yeah, kept pushing it. So I was selling suits at Nordstrom. I sold you your suit, Eric. Your wedding. Sure tux. did. Whoop whoop. Looking fly. Yeah, Looking sharp. <laughs> yeah. Um, so working there and then I moved over to a custom suit shop down in Southeast Portland. I was working there. Um, and it was probably a year and a half after working there that a coworker of mine told me she was sober. She got sober and she had been going to AA for a few weeks and I was totally blown away. I was like, are you serious? Like you have a problem. You're like so together and with it. Uh, so I thought, um, and I remember saying to her, like, I should really do that, but I really like beer. <laughs> Did <laughs> I she say anything that. back? Like, No, I mean, I think she knew because we would party together. We'd go out, um, mm-hmm. like as a, as a team, we'd have like nights going out and I would get hammered, you know, and I she wouldn't drink. No, she would drink oh, okay. until she got sober. Until she got yeah. sober. yeah. And so that was like the big catalyst, like seeing her get sober and, you know, a lot changed within a month of her sobriety. And so I was like, well, shit, I guess I really should do this. Um, I remember downloading an audiobook called Being Sober, um, and I didn't start listening to it yet. I knew once I started listening to it, that might be like it. Um, and I was dropping my sister off at the airport and turned it on, was like, I'm just going to listen to it, see what happens. And I was like, oh, wow, I have so much in common with this person. I had no idea, literally no idea. And I, I feel like that's what alcoholics think. You think you're alone. I, I can speak to that 100%. Yeah. And what I find is very interesting uh, is your statements about not wanting to give it up. I can remember that the whole time. It's kind of like, this is my goddamn thing. I want to keep it. Don't yeah. you dare take it away from yeah. me. I will tell you when it's time to stop the game. Mm-hmm. I'll blow the whistle, not you. And so listening to you talk about it like that, it's exactly the way I think of it. And yeah. that is the addict thinking is what it is. Totally. Yep. Because you're so stuck in your own mindset. You're selfish. You are selfish as fuck. And you, you, you were funny because you were talking about uh, seeing your therapist and withholding the detail that you're also an alcoholic. I did that exact same thing. Wow. I just wanted them to like help me with my uh, mental problems, anxiety and all that. I didn't know I was bipolar at the time, but I tell you what, you're not taking my alcohol away from me. Yeah, no, no, no. Especially my solitary drinking. That's Mm -hmm. the ultimate form of drinking, is drinking by yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, even like going to doctor visits, you know, you meet a new doctor, you fill out the form and it's like, how many drinks do you have per week? Yeah. It's like, uh, one. LOL. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's add a zero, maybe a second zero. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are we in the three digits here? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. What, where, what yeah, you listen to your audiobook. Oh, yeah. So I listened to that audiobook. <laughs> and that's when I was like, oh, shit, I had this person I have so much in common with. And that was it. Like that night, I had my last drink. I remember being like, this is it. Oh, by the way, my drink of choice. This is so ridiculous. Every day I'd come home from work, I'd stop at a gas station and pick up those like wine boxes. <laughs> yep. You know, Franzia ones are like not Franzia, but it's like they're like shitty cheap wine boxes. So shitty! Oh my god, single serve. Like like, you want to vomit after drinking them. They're so (laughs) gross. But I like relied on that to sleep. I you know I think one was like three glasses the equivalent. Yeah, so I'd pick up three and every day, and I'd drink in my room probably two of them until I felt a good enough buzz to go to bed. Uh, And then in my nightstand, I had just like full of these boxed wines because I didn't want anyone to know. So like it would get to a point where I couldn't even open the nightstand because it was just like full of these boxed wines. Did your drink of choice change over time as your alcoholism progressed? Mine, I I mean, at the end I would just take, you know, buy half gallons of vodka and I would just keep putting vodka and Gatorade. Yeah. And I never, I didn't start (laughs) out like that, but if I was in a pinch, I'd buy wine if I woke up and I had alcohol withdrawal, I can go to the store at 7 a.m. and buy, like, Mike's Hard Lemonade and Four Loco and all that. Mm-hmm. So, Ooh, Four Loco. Yeah, the box about that one. When it was good. <laughs> 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 you can still get some 14%. I'll go pick you up some. Right <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I don't know if I ever really had a drink of choice. I think the reason I was doing the box wines, I had done, you know, just a handle of vodka under the bed for a while and would just take poles of that in bed. And I'd done that, but the hangovers from those were so awful that I, and I was like, that's alcohol status. If I'm just having wine in bed, I'm okay. So I would have my box wine and not be super hungover the next day. You know, you still feel like shit. And like, I'm living with my family. I, I can't go anywhere until I brush my teeth because they will smell alcohol in my breath. Yeah. You were talking about smelling earlier. That's one thing my dad always said to me. He goes, Jesus Christ, Bobby, you smell like a distillery all the time. Wow. And when you're around uh, people who are drunks, they reek yeah. terribly because it just pours out of your skin. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we think that we're so smart and sneaky. Oh, mm-hmm. check me out. Uh, but everyone smells you. It's a dead giveaway. Yeah. And that was like I, another reason why I went to wine. I thought like, maybe this, I can avoid <laughs> it. I can avoid them. <laughs> so, so let's bring it back to the circle of, you know, you talk about how you were getting your recovery or how you were, mm-hmm. you know, coping with your alcoholism and kind of getting over that. Yeah. You know, what were, uh, you, you had that realization, you, read, you listened to that audiobook. then what? So that night I had my last boxed wine uh, and my coworker, we were talking and she's like, I'm going tomorrow at 7 a.m. I go to this amazing meeting on the east side of town. It was really close to work. So I was like, I may or may not see you there. Uh, and I woke up really early and I did it and I went there and had my first meeting, which was so bad. Oh, my God. So people go to these meetings sometimes just to collect their coins. Like one year they go, two years they go, and those are the only meetings they go to. Hmm. So this one guy was there. I think it was like his third year or something. And in this room, like the if you have a coin, I think you get to call on people to share. Normally it's like popcorn style. It depends on the room. Uh, but he like finishes telling his story, and then he's like, hey, new guy, why don't you share? And looks at me and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? What, what do I do? I like stand up. I'm like, hey, I'm Jimmy. 
this is my first day. Like, I didn't even say I'm an alcoholic because I didn't know at that point, you know? Yeah, talk a little bit about that um, component of AA and the, hi, my name's Jimmy, I'm an alcoholic. How did that sit with you? Horribly. Because? Because alcoholic has such negative connotations to it. I was done playing that negative self-talk game. And that's one of the reasons why I couldn't do AA. What a big juxtaposition, right? Like you had yeah. to get over this like negative talk. And yeah. And that's exactly what you have to like become powerless to, I mm-hmm. think. And I think while I was in it and going through the steps with my sponsor, I think I embraced it because that's what everyone else did. And also when you're getting sober, you're changing so much. Your body is all out of whack and feeling weird. I remember like after a couple weeks sharing again and being like, I don't know what's going on, but I feel like I'm on my period. I don't know what that's like, but I'm sure it's something like this. <laughs> it's because it's called post-acute withdrawal syndrome, P-A-W-S, pause. Oh. And it goes for up to two years. It takes the brain up to two years to heal itself. And the feelings you're describing, just like you're irritable, confused, you don't know what the hell's going on, you don't feel like yourself, that mm-hmm. falls within that category. That's yeah. what you were probably feeling at the time. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so... That morning, I, I mean, the meeting ended, I actually it was at six, I think six to seven. Um, so then I go home and my parents are like awake about to leave for work. And they're like, oh my God, we thought you were in bed. Like what, what's going on? <laughs> and I said, I went to my first AA meeting and they were blown away. They had no idea, absolutely no idea. I was drinking every night for the past eight years and was an alcoholic. So I tell you. That's how I did it. I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm just going to fucking do it. Yeah. I have to tell people I got to be accountable, hold myself accountable, have other people hold me accountable. Um, And my parents are amazing. You know, my mom grew up with an alcoholic dad, so she knows what to do. Um, Did you ever feel like uh, you're fighting against your own brain? Like your alcoholic brain's like, Jimmy, you need to keep drinking and not tell anybody. But then another part of your brain knows that there's the bad part of your brain and it's pushing you anyway. Like there's two forces working in your mind, basically. Um, Maybe you don't feel like that. I don't think I did. Yeah. I was just like, let's do this. I'm going to fucking do it. Um, And that morning, my mom gave me this cross that I'm wearing right now, which was, this is my grandpa's cross. And he wore it every day of his life. And he died maybe a couple years before I got sober. And so he's like... This is what helps me. He's like my sponsor from wherever he may be. Um, That's very cool. Yeah. And I feel very honored to have this. Yeah. Um, it's amazing and it really helps me. Um, Did you start sharing more about like what you were going through after this point? It, it took a while to start letting people know. Um, I told close friends, you know, one by one. Um, I didn't really like announce it in social media or any way mm-hmm. until a year and a few months afterwards. Um, because I don't do social media anyways. Um, right. I'm really bad at it. <laughs> well, I think how I found out, uh, you know, that you were an alcoholic was because I, the, the picture you took, I think in your Hawaii. Yep. That was the post. Was it like the one year? That was the post. Yeah. Yeah. That was, it was a classic Jimmy post where, <laughs> He's on the beach in Hawaii on a recliner, yeah, knitting yeah. in front of the ocean. Shows long, <laughs> just like knitting away. Yeah. So before a year before I got sober, I started knitting. My coworker who got me sober is a huge knitter, and mm-hmm. she was like, "I was 
clearly going through a rough time in life. And she's like, hey, why don't you try knitting? It clears my anxiety and makes me feel good. So I picked it up and I've been knitting ever since five years. I fucking love knitting. I'm yeah. on a sweater kick right now. There's a sweater <laughs> in my bag. I'm yeah. knitting on Yeah. We'll have to see uh, it. I'm like full grandma these days. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that day I told my parents and they took the alcohol out of the house, moved it somewhere. Um, that That's was another thing. I had no drink of choice, but I knew where the alcohol was. So yeah. I slowly... Because I didn't want my family to know I was drinking it. I'd take little sips from each bottle, <laughs> like, every night. And then, you know, they wouldn't even look at it until, like, four weeks after yeah. they last poured a drink. And they'd be like, oh, yeah. why is everything so low? <laughs> so so Bobby had a really good point when he was talking about having to face alcoholism. Every, I mean, just because in our society, it's just so over the table. I mean, like, you go to a grocery store, you go to a friend's yeah. house, you are at work, you know. What is that like for you? That was really hard. Is it still hard today? No. For me okay. today, it's not. Um, but when I was getting sober, it was really hard, especially being gay. Like, we, there are a ton, the, I meant to look at the statistics, but the alcoholic percentage of gay people is insane. I think it's like, I think I saw this morning, it was, Let me the check numbers it were like out. 25%. In my yeah. experience in treatment centers and everything, and I've been to a lot of them, I can definitely attest to that. Yeah. It's overrepresented in that population. Yeah. yeah. I mean, queer people are, you know, we're a minority. And mm -hmm. because of that, we get discriminated against. What was harder, uh, to come out uh, being gay or telling people that you're an alcoholic? Uh, I don't know. That's a really good that is a good question. Um, I, th I think it was harder to be alcoholic because that's more of like a disease yeah. than wow. like who I am. Because like when I was getting, when I got sober, that's when people became woke and yeah. were like, oh, gay is not a choice. Yeah. So, so up to 25%. Yeah. In some rehab. Guy yeah. And Google. you know, so like for gays, historically the safe spaces for them have been bars, mm -hmm. like Stonewall and all of these places. Yeah. So that's what gays do. Drinking is so ingrained in gay culture, mm -hmm. um, which is slowly changing. But because of that, I wouldn't go out. I you know, lost a lot of friends. I had to push some friends aside, um, which yeah. was also hard. But that was yeah. I remember you uh, mentioning that yesterday when you were getting. You know, you made the tough choices of mm -hmm. you know really pushing some really good friends away. Yeah, and like I had a friend who, his dad went through a a several times. He was in and out, relapsing a lot, and so he had no faith in the program. And when I was getting sober, I would see him every once in a while, and every time I saw him, he's like, "Oh, are you still sober?" And like that mindset I couldn't have in my life. Like I needed people who were, you know, like I'm dedicated to this. And if you don't believe that I'm dedicated to this, I can't have that energy around. So like I had to say bye to people. Mm -hmm. um, it's really strong that you did that. Yeah. Have you, have you been able to find like a circle of people around you that are both gay and like trying to go through not drinking or is this still something that's just on your own shoulders? Um, kind of on my own shoulder. So probably after six to eight months of being in AA, I realized like, this is not for me. Um, it's, it's a really dated program from my experience. Uh, I mean, the book was written in what, 1935 and hasn't been updated since. It's like the Bible. You know? It's like the Bible. And like the rooms I were in were pretty misogynistic and horrible. And like in today's world, the rooms need to be looked at. Um, so you can tell you've been to a lot of AA meetings because you say the rooms. Yeah. That's what people say. Oh, that's what we call that's the meetings phrase. is okay. the rooms. You have them in different rooms. 
like I've been in rooms where men are sexually harassing women and the women have to leave. And, you know, you bring that up to the leaders of the meetings and they're like, well, we can't do anything because he's sober and he needs to stay sober. But at the same time, like, but he's driving these women to relapse because he's sexually harassing them. So like at what point, you know, do you like kick people out because of their behavior? So I was really frustrated by that. Um, And also I don't like religion (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I believed I was going to hell for being me. I like have a thing against religion and organized religion. And like I was done with being Catholic and done with God, you know? So having to like say this prayer and every step relates to God or whatever. I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. And also another reason why I left, um, what is, I think the first step is admitting you're powerless to this substance. Alcohol that your life has become unmanageable. Yeah. And I disagree with that because I find incredible strength and power in my sobriety. Like I find my sobriety to be my strength moving forward in life and having to admit you're powerless and calling yourself an alcoholic every day and sitting in these rooms where all you're doing is talking about alcohol. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, why are, why are you doing that? You're trying to be sober. Why? And maybe that's why there's such a big relapse rate in AA because you're constantly talking about wanting a drink and stuff like that. Well, I think there's a, there's kind of a juxtaposition between you and Bobby. I mean, it's like night and day, right? Really? There's people that need to like, like Bobby, like, you know, you were kind of outwardly focused on it, right? You had, you had a circle around you. You were able to go to AA and like find uh, like positivity and like find a way to get around it. And then there is Jimmy, like you, they're like very not introverted, but like more like internally focused. I mean, you have to address this more on your own terms versus on other people's terms. Am I getting that right? Or I, I think to a degree, AA for me, I would very much like Jimmy. I'm in cahoots with him to a large degree on yeah. just the, um, overall nature of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I just have had to learn over the years to be positive as much as possible and try and take the good. Mm-hmm. So like I treat AA, like I'm sure you've heard this, like a buffet, you know, <laughs> let's pretend I'm in Vegas. Yeah. Like I don't need to go eat everything, but maybe I really want some sushi and uh, cheesecake, man. Right. And then I'll take the sushi and cheesecake back to my room. That's right. awesome. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you don't need to have all of it. Right. But the yeah. reason I didn't fully engross myself into AA is because I feel, um, like I'm doing a disservice to everybody else in AA if I'm not like really into it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, that, I mean, that's just kind of how I feel about it. I don't know if that's right or it's wrong, but yeah. it's the way I feel. I yeah. agree. And it got to a point where I was no longer drinking the Kool-Aid and I was like, peace out. Like, and, and what you say about everyone talking about alcohol all the time is so true. I mean, what a strange concept. <laughs> yeah. Going it's to so a place weird. all the time and say, hi, my name is Bobby. I'm a cancer survivor. And then all you just talk about cancer all day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. you gotta be kidding me. That It's weird. It, it's, <laughs> so there's, it was the original though. It's the prototype for yeah. everything that followed. So there's a lot of BS involved in it, but I think there's some decent stuff too. Yeah. Like I never worked, you'd work the steps. Did you do all 12 steps? I did not. I didn't either. The farthest I ever got was the fourth step. I've had two sponsors. Which one's the fourth one? Fourth is when you uh, basically write down the whole litany of everything your gripes your against everybody and yeah. your wrongs and all this yeah i think i got to that one too yeah. i was like mm, peace i'm done <laughs> i also like i was in the meetings you know and you hear stories like oh i was at an airport with a friend and he ordered a beer and he went to the bathroom and i looked at that beer and i was like i could just grab this right now yeah. but my higher power told me not to 
And I'm sitting here like, no, it didn't. You fucking made the choice not to. Like, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> this is your choice. You take control of your life. So yeah. what would you say to listeners who do internalize more than others that really take this on as like an internal battle? Um, so it's complicated because I know people now who are sober but have not gone through any program or done any sort of self-care work. And what I'm really grateful for, I know we were talking about this earlier, Bobby, um, is the community that I made while I was there. I do miss a sober community. But if you're getting sober and you're not working on yourself and improving your, your life and, you know, just being a better person, you're not sober. You're still an alcoholic. That's the whole thing. You know, you're a dry drunk is what they say. Yeah. But you're right. Look, I'm sitting here listening to you. You have outstanding character. You're a very centered person. You know yourself. Oh, my God. No, seriously. You know the world. Just the act of you taking out your grandfather's medal and talking about it, it it shows me that you're working on a higher plane. You are. You've really much thought about this a lot. And that's what you have to do. You do have to change as a person. I needed to learn how to be more patient and not talk all the time and not be such an <laughs> asshole. Seriously, not be so goddamn opinionated about everything. Like I still am, but you should have seen me way before. Mm-hmm. I'm way different. And the reason I am is because I've been getting sober. Mm-hmm. Right. That's why. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if you're, if you're not actively working on yourself, I mean, like I said earlier, alcoholics are liars and they believe their lies, you know? And if, yeah. if you're just a dry drunk, you're still lying. You still have those selfish alcoholic tendencies. They just manifest in different ways. Right. You can still be an asshole, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how about the, like the power of community? We heard the power of community with Bobby. You said you, you had this community of like... I was going to yeah mention yeah. that, yeah, community. The, the story that you were talking yesterday about where you work. So you graduated mm-hmm. as a... In music, uh, as an opera singer. Yeah, okay. And then you uh, um, you mentioned one of uh, your parts of recovery that really helped you with staying busy, uh, you know, working your day job, and then also going to a coding boot camp here in Portland. Yeah, it's um, go tech. Yeah, <laughs> and then you get your job, um, <laughs> and then uh, you know, uh, I won't mention the company right now, uh, mm-hmm. but if you can, go ahead because uh, I think it was absolutely wonderful what they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really shows the power of community of what what occurred. Yeah, yeah. I'm very, very lucky where I work. Um, I work at New Relic, a uh, tech company in town. Uh, a lot of friends there. It's yeah, great. yeah, it's a great company. Yeah. And they take care of us so well. They really treat us amazingly. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I didn't really know anyone there that was also sober, you know, I don't know what the statistic is, but there's going to be someone else in the room it's with about you. It's like one sober. in three. Yeah, one in three. Households yeah. that who have someone Crazy. they know. Crazy. Yeah. So, like, you know, every month we have a happy hour uh, that is run by a specific group within the community, in, in New, New Relic, whatever. They host it, and it's fun. You get free food and drinks, and there's always alcoholic beverages as well as non-alcoholic beverages. But... Um, there was a day where they were prepping for it and they're on our, our kitchen floor just like pouring, you know, handles of whiskey in this giant mixer and someone walks by and smells it and that happens to be their trigger. Mm. And uh, so this person writes a blog, an internal blog about it and their experience with it and it went viral internally and people were coming out of the woodwork. Like I posted on it. It was like, this is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing this and bringing this to the company because it's an issue. 
that people don't think about. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, people were reaching out to me saying, I'm, I want to get sober. Uh, people were reaching out to the editor of this post saying they want to get sober. And then like people on the thread were like, I agree. I'm also sober. So it was really, really amazing to see this community come out. And like that day, the head of the Portland office was like, we got to change this alcohol policy. We, you know, we had like beers on tap and they like took those away. They, during work hours. Um, wow. Yeah. That's really great to hear. Yeah. So I'm very, very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. When you mentioned that story yesterday, that's uh, something that I really want to highlight because, you know, to have companies like that, because it is prevalent, you know, you think mm -hmm. of Silicon Valley, you know, the big party and it's a frat know, house. Yeah, basically. it's a big frat house, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. And for them to take action that quickly and for people to, you know, really be able to express themselves um, to say, hey, I, I am looking for help or I am sober and and for them not to judge, yeah. um, to, but to accept it and really help. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And I think, you know, companies like that need to be highlighted because that yeah. is a huge, huge step um, in helping, you know, shed that stigma mm -hmm. around, you know, substance use. Yeah. yeah. I think underlying also is that you're not alone. Yeah. You know, listeners need to know that they're not alone yes. in what they're going through and that you just either have to put yourself out there or see others put themselves out there that, to empower you. So, yeah. Big time. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned knitting helps, uh, what other uh, stuff on a day-to-day -day basis help um, you uh, keep your recovery? Well, so when I was getting sober first, like, I did the coding boot camp and staying busy really, really helped because I wasn't able to go out with friends and do all those drinking activities. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got this job and then I, you know, progressed in my career. Like just in that first year alone, so much changed in my life. Um, I really was able to fully love myself. Um, you know, working with my therapist, I retrained my brain to get rid of that negative self-talk and Ray, you know, get that self-awareness. Uh, but that first year of sobriety, I really was like, oh, okay, there's so much more like I didn't know about. Um, and like my friends said I was like holier than thou my first year of sobriety, <laughs> but like whatever I was discovering myself, yeah. you know, kind of for the first time. Uh, and, uh, but now, like, as I look back on my life and look back on what has changed since getting sober, I, there's nothing that will convince me to drink again because of those accomplishments amazing. and because wow. of how amazing. amazing I feel now and like how incredible, like I, I'm just like filled with love uh, around me and in myself. And I don't want to jeopardize that. That's incredible. I think getting to that point of like fulfillment. Right. Yeah. That's great to hear. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are days where you have off days. Like, yeah, sure. Like last summer I went off Prozac because I was like, okay, I've never been not on an antidepressant while sober. Mm -hmm. This was my next question was asking. Yeah. Know, how, are you still on meds it? or like? Yeah. What? So last summer I was like, I was feeling really good. I had moved out of my parents' house <laughs> uh, a while ago, but I was like self-sufficient, you know, no longer on their phone bill. And was like, that's I, the big, that's the big moment. As soon as you're it. off the cell phone, you know, you're yeah, individual. You've made it. Yeah, you made, made it. it. <laughs> I had the same experience. Yeah. Like might as well retire. I still yeah, got exactly. student loan debt. I did Whatever. a hang up, hang up the cup, yeah. <laughs> hang up the gloves. Oh man. Uh, yeah. So I was actually hooking up with a family therapist at the time and we were talking about it. I had a boy. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I had like a lot of sexual anxiety because I had, sexual side effects from Prozac, which I didn't know. 
I didn't mm. know I was experiencing the side effects. I just thought I don't have a libido and I can't keep it up and I can't finish. So many of those psychiatric medications have horrible side effects in that realm. Yeah. It's a huge thing. It is. Did you go through the same thing, Bobby? Or? N- not personally, no, no. But just through listening to everybody and their reactions to medications, there's so right. many different types of reactions and that's, right. that's one yeah. So I didn't know that I was experiencing that until hooking up with him. <laughs> He's like, oh, this is probably why you're on an SSRI. And I was like, no, I'm not. Prozac doesn't do that. But yeah, it sure does. So I talked to my doctor about it and I was in like a really good place. So I went off and that summer was really great. And I had a show that winter. This was last winter. And so I had something to work up to. When the show ended, it was like, oh, shit, uh, it's winter. I live alone. I don't, you know, it just really sunk back in the mm. depression. Yeah. So talk to my doctor on a new drug now, which is awesome. It's not an SSRI. Um, I'm on Wellbutrin, which he actually prescribes to treat erectile dysfunction. Hmm. So that's pretty great for me. Well, <laughs> like go. another little bonus there. <laughs> but also like when, when I went off Prozac, I, it was like another sobriety moment because I real, I realized then like my emotions were actually dampened. I wasn't mm-hmm. feeling full joy, full anger, full frustration, like all of those crazy emotions that come with life uh, and sobriety. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that was a huge moment, like realizing, oh, shit, I, you know, I have all this stuff now. Yeah. Um, so two questions to wrap up. Um, uh, one, uh, you know, for to tell any listeners you know, who are going through you know, alcoholism, what would you tell them? And then also, too, um, you know, for any young people, teenagers, even adults, you know, who are, are afraid to come out of the closet, what would you tell them as well? You are not alone for both. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even as a gay kid, I mean, I, it might be different now with social media. I was not around for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're not alone for both of them. That's how I felt as an alcoholic. I thought I was the only one. It was all me. And uh, same with being gay, you know, learn yeah. to love yourself, come out. If you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love someone else? Yeah. In the wise words of RuPaul. <laughs> <laughs> Great quote. To well, Jimmy, thank you so much for coming Thanks on so much, and Jimmy. sharing your story. Yeah. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you. Sure has. <laughs> I didn't realize I could talk for so long. Shoot. Oh, you're good. Felt yeah. like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you for listening to the Henry's Uncle podcast. Please take a second to like, subscribe, or rate us. But more importantly, please share this podcast with anyone who may be interested in the topics discussed so they know they are not alone. As always, at Henry's Uncle, you are loved, never judged.